Southern Company is an industry leader in resilience and innovation. They're making energy smarter and more sustainable for the 9 million customers they serve across the country, from modernizing their infrastructure to setting a goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Southern Company is committed to building a resilient energy future today and for the generations to come. Learn more at southerncompany.com/resilience. Southern Company, building the future of energy. It's always been background noise in my life. Like, oh, we're at war here. We're at war here. Oh, now we're going to war here. Oh, look at that. Another war. Like, it just never stops. <laughs> it's just always been there. Sort of like one of those things where it's like, you never really think about your favorite color. You just sort of know your favorite color. Even if it changes, it's just always sort of like a part of you. That's Adsel. Adsel Sparrow. I was born September 11th, 2001. Today is her 19th birthday. My birthday has been a part of my life forever. So, yeah, it marks, like, the country before and after, but I more think of it. It's just one of those milestones in life that you just sort of add on after a while. And this is Nerdcast. Today is 9-11, 19 years after the Twin Towers were attacked. We've got Politico magazine contributor Garrett M. Graff. I'm a journalist and the author of The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11. Who spoke to Adsel and nearly two dozen other so-called 9-11 babies this past month. We're, we're not babies. We are real people. We have feelings. Anyway, Adsel is going to be voting in a presidential election for the first time this November. About a quarter of the United States now is actually too young to remember 9-11 or was born after the fact. Now they're coming of age during another historic moment. I mean, they always said the world changed after 9-11 is changing after COVID. How are some of these young people grappling with their new political power right now? We have the power to change a lot of things, or at least try to change a lot of things. And how might that change the outcome of the election? I hope a lot of people my age take it seriously. Um, I mean, my friends do. You'll be hearing from more first-time voters we spoke to throughout the show. You are making a choice that has a big impact. You know, that's sort of the point of voting is to promote change. Definitely the next election is definitely going to be um, a turning point in what's going to happen. Garrett, you spoke to not just people who are first-time voters, but people who were actually born on today's date 19 years ago. These people who were born on the darkest day in modern American history are now sort of entering adulthood under a brand new cloud. What about growing up post 9-11 has shaped these people over the last 19 years? One of the things that makes this generation unique is that we have been, as a country, at war in Afghanistan and Iraq every day that they have been alive. Yeah, you know, we've always been at war. You're like eight years old. You're like watching TV, they refer to it. They're always talking about it on the news. It's just always been there. My parents tell me stories that they could go through airport security in like 10 minutes. And I'm like, oh, I wait in the airport for like 45 minutes and get pat down. The youngest servicemen and women in the U.S. military are now being deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan to fight in wars that are actually older 
than they are. Wars that have now been going on so long that it is possible their parents actually fought in the early stages of the Afghanistan invasion, you know, came home, had kids, and now those kids are eligible to fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. And one of the things that really stood out to me was how little impact the fact that the United States has been at war for their entire life has had to them. That you know They, they haven't known any different, right? They haven't known anything different. They learn very little about these conflicts in school. They have very little sense of why we are even engaged in these conflicts. It's sort of like one of those accepted facts of life. As terrible as that sounds, I've never really stopped to think about like how I've, we've always been at war. It's just always been there. The war at home, though, has been much more personal for them. This is a generation that has weathered the epidemic of school shootings that we have experienced. I mean, for many of them, the first national news event that they really remember is the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School. In Newtown, Connecticut, it is the scene of one of the worst school shootings in the history of the United States. And we can report they talk about how much school shootings uh, have changed their education, um, you know, how every time they enter a classroom, they look for where the exits are, they sort of figure out, you know, how they would escape if a shooter came into the room. I was, you know, actually horrified personally to realize how many of them have had brushes with school shootings themselves, either have had school shootings on their campuses or have had threats or scary situations where they've been evacuated by SWAT teams, you know, because of a feared threat. Things that sort of would be unimaginable to me as someone growing up in the 1980s and that for these kids, that's something that's been routine for basically as long as they can remember. What about also the uh, the Great Recession? It probably happened a little early for kids of this generation, now adults of this generation, to have maybe understood the broad scope of what's going on. But the effects probably hit a lot of families at a very impressionable age for a lot of them, six, seven, eight. I imagine that probably had a kind of formative effect on on some of these kids, too. You know, Scott, actually, what was interesting to me was for most of them, they have no memory of it, that they have sort of this vague sense. It challenged their families. But I was even surprised, you know, how few of them really remember the 2012 or the 2016 presidential campaigns, even. For a lot of them, you know, they were just becoming teenagers between that 2012 and 2016 election for the first time and, you know, still paying very little attention to politics. And of course, now they are graduating into the pandemic, you know, much more politically aware, um, much more politically engaged and have witnessed this national spread of Black Lives Matter protests and police brutality protests over the course of this year and really see that as sort of the galvanizing political movement of their lives. I don't want just this to be one movement in in our history books and then we move on from it. You talked before about uh, memory versus history, but I think we're all pretty safe in the assumption that that our memories of right now are history in in the making 
and, and for and for them as well, just at a younger point and newer point in their adult lives and their political power. Absolutely. The spread of the Black Lives Matter protests this year, I think, has underscored for many of them the importance of political engagement, that you can make change, that you can make a difference, and that they see that. Racism, police brutality, all of that stuff is not going to be eradicated in our lifetime. I mean, in my opinion, it's going to take like centuries of perseverance and hard work. And all, all we can do is is plant those seeds and just hope that generations after us will do better. And I feel like that's happening right now with our generation. Yeah, and I think that our generation is is doing I think they're doing a pretty good job of trying to plant those seeds. One of the things that sort of stood out for me is, you know, obviously I was interviewing just a handful of the 13,238 people who were born on September 11th, 2001. So, uh, you know, this was not a totally representative focus group of its diversity. But the students that I spoke to, the young adults that I spoke to, have both a somewhat sophisticated sense of politics, but also a much more diverse set of politics than you might think based on how sort of crazy liberal and crazy progressive we sort of imagine young people to be in America right now. You know, I spoke to a number of Trump voters, a number of people actually sort of quite disaffected by Joe Biden, you know, people who don't see either major party really reaching them and embracing their needs and their values. And I was really surprised by the amount of frustration uh, about how politically polarized the country is and the need for better solutions from the political system than they see anyone offering right now. I am voting because I know my voice matters in our democracy. And if I want to see the changes I want to see in our government, then I have to be an active participant in it. Just a lot of stuff that's going to impact our future is like in our hands and it's just falling out like sand. And I think that's important that we have the chance to stop it. We'll be right back. For over 100 years, Southern Company has been providing the resilient energy solutions their customers and communities count on, no matter what. They're committed to building a brighter tomorrow and improving their customers' quality of life. By setting a goal of net zero carbon emissions and investing in local communities, learn more about why Southern Company believes resilient people make resilience possible at southerncompany.com resilience. Southern Company, building the future of energy. And we're back. The things you've described, the Black Lives Matter movement, and effects of the coronavirus pandemic and galvanizing this generation right now as they prepare to vote in their first presidential election. I mean, ultimately, both of these are about failures of, of governance, failures of governance across the political spectrum. And and, and yet you, you mentioned before the feeling that some of the, the people you talked to had about how uh, they can make a difference by organizing. I'm curious how, how those two 
facts and thoughts collide <laughs> because government is serving them so poorly right now um it, yeah. yeah what they're living through right now is is could be a, a pretty strong deterrent to, to getting involved yeah and i think that that to me was actually the thing that i was most surprised by the sense of uh, sort of hope and optimism that these students who, you know, grew up in the age of school shootings, graduated into the pandemic, graduated into Black Lives Matter protests. You could hardly fault them if they thought that politics and government had failed them entirely. But they actually draw a distinction between themselves and the millennial generation who are the ones that they see as sort of too cynical and too weary from failed politics. I think our generation is definitely more like, let's go vote, let's promote change, more so than other generations in the past when they were younger. You can't expect change without being political. I, f I definitely feel like most people my age have been motivated to vote, but also, you know, taking action in other forms, like protesting and using social media. They sort of see that this is a moment when the country can go nowhere but up to them, which I thought was a remarkable observation that their view was, you know, look, we see history in a very long sense because to us, it's all history. And that, you know, 9-11 to them is not even a distant memory. I mean, it is a literal, a literal example of something that they have read about only in history books. So for them, they see their generation coming into politics right now as an opportunity to change the dialogue in a big way. And one of the things that, you know, stood out in a number of my conversations is LGBTQ plus rights are a settled issue for them. You know, I, I grew up in the 1980s and 1990s. I'm a Vermonter. I was in high school when Vermont issued its civil unions bill and kicked off the gay marriage movement. And to them, that's all a settled issue. Um, you know, I had one guy talk to me about how their generation is so focused on transgender rights, sort of the next turn of the wheel from their perspective in inclusivity and acceptance of people wherever they are. After talking to all the people you talked to, do you think you, you hit on something that maybe we we don't see coming that this generation is poised to shake up or, or change just because of the way they're approaching all these issues, the way they're thinking about their political power and politics in general. Yeah, so I think that there are a couple of things that stand out for me as we think about Generation Z coming into politics. Um, one is it's important to remember that this is actually a relatively small generation purely size wise right you're not talking about just people born on on 9 11 here you're talking about this you know the kind of multi-year stretch yes the generation z right. as demographers call them you know this is actually a relatively small generation as american generations go and so they won't necessarily be the dominant voting force that for instance the millennials are which are the largest generation in American history. 
But at the same time, this is a generation that I think is going to shake up what we think of as the wedge issues, the things that they consider sort of important to their generation, sort of what they accept widely in their generation is going to be different than generations before. And in the same way that you saw, you know, generations subsequent to the civil rights movement sort of settle some of those big issues that this generation will embrace their own vision for America over the decades ahead that will be presumably quite different than what their parents or their grandparents believed. Everything that we say is a lot of just like platitudes, like, oh, our generation is the one that can change it. Like, we're the ones that like are powerful. But like, I mean, yes, that's, there's truth in that. But also you can't just hand over like an entire issue to just one generation, if that makes sense. Like, it's everyone's issue. Like, we're all, you know, Americans. Like, this is, all of us have to take blame into the situation. And it's it's not one generation's issue to solve. And sorry, just really quickly, I want to also add that um, I think... Our generation has definitely realized that vocalizing opinions from afar isn't isn't going to to change the political climate in our country. Like the only way is to actually engage with those systems and institutions at its core and, you know, like reconstruct it from the inside out. Garrett, you, you started your piece by talking about what it felt like for parents who were having babies at this moment on 9-11. Uh, women in the hospital with the doctors and, and nurses all glued to the TV and things like that. I mean, can you describe that a little bit? So this piece actually, you know, I, I mentioned I, I wrote this oral history of 9-11 that pulled together the experiences and the voices of 480 Americans who lived through that day, sort of coast to coast, morning to night. And one of them was Susanna Harada, an Arlington, Virginia mother who gave birth that day to her son Dylan in the midst of a hospital that was preparing to receive wounded from the Pentagon. And that was one of the stories in this book that had uh, always stuck with me. And so part of my interest in doing this story now for the 19th anniversary was to go back and actually find Dylan and sort of find what his life was like. And so I spoke to him and others who were born that day. But, you know, for the parents across the country who gave birth that day, it was a day of immense distraction, as as one might imagine. I mean, that you're sort of torn between trying to follow the news as it unfolds while also having this, you know, hugely important personal day, in some ways, you know, the most important day many parents will ever have in their lives. And, you know, doctors and nurses being fully distracted by the news, hospitals in New York, in Washington, and elsewhere, preparing their hospitals to receive wounded to deal with the 9-11 attack itself. So it was an incredible day to mix the joy of these individual births with the collective tragedy of 9-11 itself. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, we had a our second child a few months ago, and so the, the hospital was kind of all dealing with coronavirus, and it was very strange, but it was also the fact of life. Uh, it, it wasn't this immediate 
acute event hammering its way into your brain. Right. Which I, I can't imagine what that must have been like. Hey, uh, thank you, Garrett, for your time. Uh, this is great. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. All right, that's our show. Our producer this week is Adrienne Hurst. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament, And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. Special thanks to Adsel Sparrow. Thank you. <laughs> Phoebe and Fiona Lemon. My name's Fiona. Okay, hello, this is Phoebe. Isabella Ventimiglia. Silence is ignorance. And I try not to keep my voice shut. <laughs> even if it, even if nothing ever happens from it, at least I tried. And Shabazz Youssef. Just don't uh, cut up my voice clips to make me sound uh, too crazy, though, okay? If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. And while you're there, you can check out some of our other podcasts, Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, and Pulse Check, to name a few. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much for listening.